0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Well, the old clock on the wall says it's time for another hour or so of Lifeline, so um, let's just have at it. Good afternoon to you. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts keeping you company as we do here daily from 5 until 7, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. I just can't help but to, but but in, in a sense, think deja vu all over again. Isn't that what Yogi Berra said? Something of that sort. Um, there's been a voting referendum in in the Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine, and you'll be pleased to know that a vast majority of Ukrainians would rather live under Russian rule. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Anschluss? <laughs> and, and as well, uh, the folks that resided in Austria deciding that they all really wanted to be a part of Germany in 1938? Yeah. Mr. Putin is playing from a very old playbook and one that we've seen before and um, he might well take a little bit of advice from history and not push his luck too far. At least he wind up in the same set of circumstances as the last major figure in European history to play this game and um, he wound up at the bottom of a very shallow grave and um, turned out to be judged by history as one of the evilest, maddest men the world has ever known. And quite frankly, Mr. Putin seems to be heading toward the exact same reputation. So uh, this is not a show today about the Ukraine, just to say pray for the people of Ukraine and pray that God will deal with Mr. Putin swiftly and severely as he deems fit. Okay, with that... Bit of commentary out of the way. Let's get down to cases here. A lot to talk about. ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. If you're old enough to um, have remembered the... um The love cycle of the 1960s and into the gas shortages of the 1970s. You probably remember the Equal Rights Amendment. Thought that had long failed, and yet apparently not. And there are a few that, speaking of forgetting history, seem to think that for some reason we're just missing a few states to sign off on this and all will be well and good and it'll be part of the United States Constitution before you know it. Of course, that is not true. It is historically Horrifically inaccurate, but it also belies a deeper agenda going on in the issue of the ERA as it specifically relates to the abortion topic. Let's learn more now from the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. Joining me, best selling author of the book The Evil Twins, Rowan Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. Always a privilege and a delight to have Brian Johnston join us and uh, Brian you know I'll recall on this program a number of years ago uh, Phyllis Schlafly God rest her soul who used to join us frequently mm-hmm. um, repeatedly said be careful if they start talking about wanting to get a constitutional convention going because they will likely do everything they can to turn around and push through the Equal Rights Amendment which is very unequal and has nothing to do with rights so it is really a uh, code word for a pretty severe um, agenda and it seems as if this whole topic has reared its ugly head yet once again tell us more
0: yes greg well thank you again it's always a pleasure to be on with you because i know you do understand and appreciate the constitution it's a great gift to america and it's constantly being attacked we know that and it's constantly being misrepresented i want to remind folks that the abortion lobby in the abortion industry does not think lying is a problem, because if you're willing to kill human babies, that's a lie in contrast to that. And they are doing it again. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, again, amending the Constitution is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It requires two-thirds vote in the legislature and then three-quarters of the states to ratify it. It is hard to do. As you mentioned, and I think we had been in studio with Phyllis Schlaffy many years ago. That's how far back we go, back. But Phyllis was great, and everyone who understood what was happening, so excellent in knowing that if you're asking for equal rights for women, it isn't about driving or voting. That really was implicit that it was about abortion. And even then, they would say, oh, no, it's not. However, later they admitted it was entirely about abortion. And even now, as it's being resurrected, that's right, it's been ruled as not having passed. They didn't get anywhere near the margin they needed. And many of the states voted on different language in different states, and those those votes were thrown out by federal courts, by Obama judges, and in fact, in every court case that they've attempted, they have failed. However, they are tenacious. And they also have a media that is quite sympathetic. Right now, as you pointed out, Craig, are saying, we can just affirm that it has passed. We have a president that will admit it as passed. We have a Congress that'll vote for it. And we'll just declare it having passed. And then every state will be prohibited from limiting abortion. They will again federalize it through this constitutional amendment, even though initially when they submitted it, oh no, it's not about abortion, It's it's about being fair to women. No, it was always about abortion, and now they're up front about it. So this is moving forward, it's going forward in the courts, and we may even see Congress vote on this zombie, it's a zombie piece of legislation, they pulled it from the grave and they want to force it on you, and they have a media cohort that's saying it, NBC, ABC, PBS, Atlantic Magazine, they're saying we can do this, we can pass the ERA. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, from a scriptural perspective, I, I, I get all about the notion of call those things that aren't as those they are uh, as, as a step of faith. Uh, but this goes beyond the pale, because as you point out, first off, you have to have fully what is the 35 of the states that have to uh, agree to the language in order to qualify for um, uh, inclusion into the Constitution. That's what ratification is all about. That did not happen. And when you have differing languages across the states over the course of the years that they were working to try and get this uh, codified into the Constitution. Well, that certainly uh, is wide and ample opportunity for a court challenge. So even if you had 35 of the states coming to the table and saying, yeah, okay, we're good with this, the minute you start to scrutinize the differences in the language from state to state, it's like, well, wait a minute now, you all have agreed, you just haven't agreed to the same thing, so there's a problem. So clearly, part of the agenda here is they are dissatisfied with the high court's decision uh, that was handed down in uh, july of this year june of this year and they're trying to do anything that they can to try and and sort of you know worm the way underneath the door so to speak to to reverse it as much as uh, california we're going to be talking about this later on tonight with greg burt um, from the california family council that even states like california are trying to codify abortion on demand into the constitution is this essentially in in your opinion brian what they're trying to do here kind of slip it in underneath the cover of darkness
0: Yes, and thankfully, we have judges like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as you know from my book. Ruth Bader Ginsburg agreed with me and with Justice Alito in that decision. Roe v. Wade, they've lied about it. It didn't give women, actually, the authority. A woman could ask for an abortion under Roe. All authority was in the hands of the abortionist. And as Justice Alito said in the Dobbs decision this year, Well, it's the states that decide who can live and die under those state laws. It's not up to an individual abortionist. This is not constitutional. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said the same thing. She was honest. It empowered only the physician. Ruth Bader Ginsburg also commented on the ERA, and she said openly, it has to start over. On many occasions, when she was asked, we disappointed the radicals. But she's read the Constitution, and she literally said, The ERA, they have to start over. The time limit has expired. It's a constitutional question. So they don't like it. They bury it. They lie about it. And that's what they're doing now. And they're hoping that we'll just shut up and pretend. If the media goes along with them, who are you to disagree? Because the media will slander you. The media will call you an idiot. You're not progressive. And they just. Want us to obey them, even when they openly lie. Now, Prop One, I'm glad you have a Greg. On they say you're codifying Roe v. Wade for California. No, Prop One goes far beyond Roe v. Wade. They don't mind lying and misrepresenting what they're doing because they have a passion to kill innocent babies, and they want to push it on people who disagree. And that's what they're doing again with the ERA.
1: All right, we appreciate the update. There's Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Light to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, again, heard Saturday mornings at... 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. More information, by the way, available online at californiaprolife.org. They do a wonderful job. We invite you to not only use their website as an invaluable resource and tool, but also to support the ongoing work of the California Pro-Life Council and, of course, what Brian Johnson is doing with his program, Life Matters. Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., right here on KFAX.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You, um, If you are a frequent television viewer, I do not count myself amongst those numbers, but for those of you that are, you might have been watching recently the uh, runaway smash hit early on TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven. And uh, it, it's kind of a... Religious murder mystery, is there such a thing as that? Um, And I won't take time here at the top of the conversation to go into uh, too too much detail, uh, because I want to get into our visit with our next guest, who is, in fact, a former member of the Mormon Church, she has written a number of best selling books. In fact, she has more than 30 bestsellers to her credit. She also has a PhD in biblical studies. Joins us now to discuss a, a book that is now retitled and re released called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And we're pleased to have join us once again Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us.
2: Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Tell me first
1: a, a bit sort of from your your perspective, why the fascination with this? I mean, I, I, I suppose in the sense, I mean, obviously, uh, Americans like a, a lot of uh, Westerners uh, love to get pulled into murder mysteries and uh, whodunit type stories and what have you. We have for, you know, going back to uh, the days of her Sherlock Holmes. This particular TV series, though, has a bit of a twist in that it is kind of against the setting of Mormonism um, all of the, the primary protagonists in the, the story uh, or, are Mormon or, or have uh, some involvement with the Mormon church why do you think it's attracting so much attention
2: well, Under the Banner of Heaven was based on a best-selling book by John Krakauer. And he based his uh, narrative nonfiction on an incident that actually happened in the 1970s in Utah, where an offshoot of the Mormon church, some, I guess we would call them Mormon extremists, um, had a woman that that kind of married into their clan, and it really was a family clan, and she didn't really toe the line on some things like having multiple wives um, and other things, and they ended up murdering her. And this is, I mean, this is a a documented case uh, that actually happened. And Krakauer's book detailed that, but when Hulu made a series out of it, they put in a a couple of characters that weren't from real life, but who were, one of them was a faithful Mormon. And I think the thing that made the big difference, Craig, with with the listeners and the watchers of this this, uh, Hulu series, was that they saw what happens to a faithful, you know, true blue Mormon, when he begins to see that his past, his, um, all of the things that he held most dear about Mormonism actually don't have reality in fact. In mm-hmm. other words, um, most of the history of the Mormon church has been just made up or plastered over or prettied up. But it's actually quite a bloody uh, background.
1: Or at times, as, as we've seen in uh, the history of probably the least certainly the last 100 plus something years and that is when certain things come out that tend to be very inconvenient then the history of the church gets rewritten and washed over and and uh, the, the denial factory uh, kicks into high gear. Beyond obviously some aspects, and I think you know, for for fairness and clarity's sake for our listeners, there are different branches of Mormonism. There's sort of the more traditional LDS, Utah, Mother Church, brand of Mormonism and then we have a lot of offshoots I'm thinking of for example the the Warren Jeffs um, uh, mm-hmm. offshoot that, that really gets into the notion of multiple wives to a very significant degree and a very, very closed type of society where on average and correct me at any point Dr. Scott if I'm incorrect here, most LDS church Mormons well perhaps a lot of their social life might be amongst other Mormons and within their own family, they they certainly don't eschew interaction with non-Mormons and, in fact, oftentimes are, are very, very active in the community around them.
2: Well, it's kind of a peculiar situation. When I was a, a very faithful Mormon at Brigham Young University, um, at that time, Brigham Young University was was for members of the main group that you just mentioned. And, and everything you said was accurate, by the way. Um, but also at BYU when I was there were several people from polygamist compounds in Mexico and in Arizona. Uh, young people that had been sent by their families to Brigham Young University because it was such a high quality of education. So, this wasn't something really openly talked about, but, you know, I knew that, uh, once you started talking to people about their background, and they weren't, usually weren't very open about it, but you could finally figure out if they were from Mexico and they were from a particular community down there, they were from a polygamous branch of the Mormon Church. And I think at last count, Craig, um, maybe 50 or 60 distinct movements have come out of the mainstream war in the church. Hmm groups.
1: Now, aside certainly from the polygamy, which of course tends to still, even in this day and an age when uh, when almost seemingly anything goes, it still tends to raise eyebrows, and yet I think there is um, a pretty significant group uh, just amongst the population that probably still positively views the, or still views the church in a, in a positive fashion in the sense that, as I mentioned, the, the, the people of the church tend to be very involved in, in civic life and, and community life and uh, you know well known for certainly clean living you know if you if you say well my neighbor you know how he is he doesn't smoke drink or go with girls that do <laughs> they'll probably say oh yeah he's a Mormon you know there's that there's that sense of of of, of a high level of discipline and healthy clean living lifestyle and yet Below the surface of sort of the presentation that all is well, the families get along, divorce never happens, it's all, uh, you know, um, coming. everything's coming up roses, there is a side of Mormonism. And again, now to be distinct, I'm not talking here about the, 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 the cult end of the polygamy side of the extreme end of LDS, but rather sort of within the mainstream church, that there's still a side of Mormonism that is not really what it's cracked up to be.
2: You know, there's an inordinately large percentage or large uh, factor of Mormon women who are on antidepressants and are and or consider suicide because of the expectations that are put on them to live that kind of lifestyle. And of course, if you believe, as I did, that when I got married, that I was going to have as many children as my body could reasonably dare because there were spirits in heaven waiting to inhabit bodies and they needed Mormon bodies, and so I was willing to do that. I didn't believe I was going to practice. Polygamy on Earth, but I did believe I would practice it in heaven when I became a goddess, and my husband's other wives were goddesses, and he was a god, and we would be populating planets. Well, you can imagine that 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 kind of expectation for eternity, coupled with the fact. That you really do want to put the best foot face forward uh, for your faith. You want your children to be, you know, dress nice, and you uh, you want to be the the hostess with the mostess, and cook and clean, and you know participate in church work. And it, it's really overwhelming for women. And I've spoken to many women who um, just suffered so silently. Not because the church was repressing them, but because of the expectations that the church and they put on them to to um, model future godhood, and it's it's quite a burden to, to carry. It would seem to me. I mean, you're you're
1: describing a model that is very, in other terms, very works based. And as we know from a biblical perspective, a, a works-based faith it never never turns out well. Uh, you know, our our, our works mm-hmm. are a result of our uh, our salvation um, or a product of our salvation, and not the other way around. And so, I would imagine it must be pretty exhausting trying to live up to that standard, and then also finding yourself in a religion that is. Um, pretty close-minded, and by that I mean, and I even say it on this program, hey, if I say something on the air that you think sounds like a lot of hooey, don't take my word for it, go and check it out, go talk to your pastor, dive into the word, and see if it doesn't agree, and if the word doesn't agree and proves me wrong, then please call me and tell me I'm an idiot and a liar. That kind of questioning, or sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, doubting, Thomas, trying of one's own faith—that's not encouraged within Mormonism is all, at all, is it?
2: Well, not only that, Craig. What you're aiming at, and what I'm aiming at, is to help our Christian brothers and sisters have compassion for these people that are overwhelmed with having to earn their salvation, or in, in Mormon terminology to earn their exaltation because they believe salvation is guaranteed to everybody if you're born on earth but exaltation means where you end up in heaven and you have to earn that you're absolutely right and so you and i both want um uh, your listeners to come away with the impression that these people that seem so formidable with this great you know this uh, and, and they're trying their hardest to do their best but there, many of them are suffering because this is quite a burden that their, their religious faith puts on them. And um, and you mentioned that they're being exclusive. I don't think you used that word. Um, from the point of view of a Mormon, I was very proud of that. I, I this uh, this close-knit group was something I was proud of and to be honest with you Craig I've been a member of the same congregation for fifty years now once I left Mormonism same Christian con- congregation of people and I love that we stick together too so you know what we see as a disadvantage in, in others we need to just make sure as, if we're going to turn the searchlight of criticism on a group that we have a um, that when it shines back on us we're not doing the same thing Um, that's why i think people often ask is mormonism a cult and um, i just wanted to ask you craig what what do you think about that
1: well, you know, as as I understand a cult, and there, there's a couple of degrees to which I, I would define it. First and foremost, when it comes down to the the most fundamental rudimentary rudimentary definition of what salvation is, uh, I I would suggest. Yes because I do not see within Mormonism the the singular belief that the only way by which man may be may be forgiven forgiven of sin and regenerated and and relationship with mm-hmm. God restored is singularly and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and yet I understand that there's so much of Mormonism that is works based which then I think would would in a sense qualify it as being a bloodless cult meaning that it does not singularly turn on Christ's work on the cross. And then when you add things like, yeah, the the sense of being being a tight-knit community is not always a bad thing, provided that, you know, it it doesn't become an echo chamber. And what I love about Mm -hmm. evangelical Christianity is not only are questions encouraged, I think that that Mm -hmm. that it really ought to be part of what we do. Hath God said, let's check out and see what the word has to say. Asking questions seems to be something that, at least from my understanding, is not always encouraged within the Mormon Church. I mean, I would suspect if you went to a- any of the Twelve Elders and said, "Okay, about these uh, about these plates of Moroni, um, yeah. and uh, so they came, they were discovered, they were translated, but you don't have them in the church library because God took them back up to heaven." Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's beautiful about Christianity is that we can demonstrate not only from the eyewitness accounts that we see and the Harmony of the Gospels and throughout Scripture, but there's also architecture and history that demonstrates that many of the things that we see and hear and read about within God's Word is, in fact... Verifiable by extra biblical sources, and that's not necessarily the case within Mormonism. So, from those two points, I would say, yeah, I would probably put, although maybe not in the same category as a, a cult, quote unquote, like a Jonestown Jim Jones style cult. I would still have to say, and I would, I would even say this to a, a, a Mormon friend that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of Mormonism does appear to be a cult.
2: You know, I agree completely with you, and I don't know whether uh, when we put this together, there are four characteristics of a pseudo-Christian cult. In other words, a cult that uses the terminology of Christianity, but um, is a a cult. And one is that it deifies man or mankind, and we talked about that when I told you that I believed I was going to become a goddess and my husband was going to become a god we've already talked about and you brought up very aptly the different view of salvation or workspace salvation when you mentioned the uh... the golden plates what did the Book of Mormon intend to do? It intended to make up for the lacks in the Bible. So the third characteristic of a cult is that it ostracizes Scripture or replaces it or diminishes it. And the only thing we didn't talk about that's the fourth characteristic of God, and I think this is remarkable that we did this, you and I, not just discussing this ahead of time, is we did not talk about how a God, the Father, in, um, in Mormon theology was a former man who lived on a different planet than this and became of God. yeah. So the four characteristics of the cult, we, we actually just been talking about it. we just been talking about what we know about Mormonism. We've already identified three of the four characteristics of a cult.
1: And you know, I find it fascinating because when we talk about man's sin nature, I mean, it, certainly the notion of wanting to to um, uh, transplant or supersede God's authority, I mean, that was hinted mm-hmm. at even within uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and said, well, hath mm-hmm. God said? And, and the notion of man wanting to take on a God like characteristics. I have to tell you uh, as a believer of many years now I find even the notion exhausting. I would have no interest. God says I am the only Lord thy God and you will have no other gods before me and I don't even want to think about the notion of being competitive uh, let alone (laughs) being on the same par. I am quite content with God being God and and I think that notion of of becoming a deity or having, I mean I I may have traits in terms of, of being created in the image and likeness of god but i am not god and when we start to do that we find ourselves quite frankly taking on the characteristics of another very prominent character in scripture and that is satan himself who wished Mm -hmm. to be god that's right and therefore, you look at that from a purely scriptural standpoint and say, you know, if Mormons insist that, you know, we we all believe in the same God, it's just a little bit of a different approach. We've got a little bit more current revelation, you know, that it didn't end with the, the final pages being written of the the uh, the New Testament somewhere in the Middle East, uh, 2,000 or 1,500 years ago, whatever the date might be. But instead, it was just, you know, less than 150, 200 years old written here and just right over here in Utah. Boy, you got to look at that and say, there seems to be something that's not quite computing. With me today is Dr. Latane Scott. She has a newly released and and retitled a book called Under the Banner of the Mormon Cold. And she draws from her own life experiences to help readers understand the current day fascination with Mormonism, particularly as it's capturing some attention um, with the current television series Under the Banner of Heaven, as well as helping us understand not only what mormon teaches how it differs from traditional mainline fundamental five pillars of the faith style christianity and then ultimately and perhaps most importantly how we can reach our mormon friends for christ we take a time out we'll come back with more as lifeline continues
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm
1: getting the sense that we should have booked an hour with our guest uh, in this segment of the program because there's so much to unpack here. But that'll maybe give you a good reason to go out and uh, order a copy of her newly released and retitled book Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, where she draws from her own life experiences and offers insights to readers in terms of not just having a better understanding of some of the history of Mormonism, what it teaches, how it differs from mainline evangelical Christianity, But then, and of course, most importantly, uh, how we're able to share our faith and encouragement with. Are Mormon friends, and and toward that end, let, let's talk about that. We've kind of talked about some of the the challenges that that Mormons face in terms of you know, the, the 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 sort of the requirement of of lifestyle and good works for um, salvation. And and I would suspect then, to some degree, uh, Mormons at some point in their their life experience must get a little bit tired and feel tremendously unfulfilled that they're working so hard and granted they've got something to look forward to but you know one of the joys uh, Dr. Scott for me is that yes I've got heaven to look forward to but I also get lots of benefits down here and the relationship with God and the satisfaction of being able to, to have that communion with him is is absolutely uh, without without equal and, and yet I would imagine for a Mormon they don't share that experience and I wonder if that's a is that potentially a starting point when you wish to share your faith with a Mormon.
2: You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because when people ask me when Mormon missionaries come to their door, what should they do? You know, what should they know? Is there a magic bullet scripture you can quote to them and they'll go away scratching their heads and, you know, starting to wonder? and it's really much simpler than that, Craig. I tell people that when someone comes to your door and tells you that they uh, have the Mormon gospel, um, I suggest that you not invite them in unless you're really, really prepared, and I believe your home is a sacred place not to bring someone in error into. But here's what I tell people to do. You can open the door and say, you know... Uh, I appreciate your coming, but you know what? I am so satisfied in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have such a happy relationship with my uh, church family. And even though I have circumstances in my life that are hard, I have eternal joy and eternal hope, and I'm content with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you why that would be so effective. When I was a Mormon, I believed that Christians were secretly unhappy and they needed Mormonism be happy, and that they were all, and of course that was always solidified when people slammed the doors in the faces of Mormon missionaries, you know, here are these sour-faced people that, you know, say, I don't want to hear you, and they shut the door. If, I think if I had, when I was a Mormon, heard Christians saying, my life with, with the Lord Jesus Christ is so satisfying that I don't need what you're offering me i tell you what, these 18, 19-year-old boys that are homesick, they're away from their homes, they're stuck with each other, you know, day and night, literally. If they heard that from, let's say, every other door that they knocked on in a neighborhood of a Christian giving them a big smile and saying, you know what? i don't, I just don't need that i I have so much joy in my life, so much satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. there's not anything you could give me that i don't already have. Those young men would go back and start thinking what do they know that we don't know
1: mm. let me ask you this from from a Mormon perspective um When when I think of God, certainly I I acknowledge and recognize that he is holy and righteous and that uh, he's a jealous God. He wants no other gods before him that he expects me to live up to a certain standard the same token that same god recognizes that in my fallen sin nature we've proven to be wholly incapable of that and therefore the reason why he sent his son to pay the price on my behalf but i i don't see god as someone that is standing in heaven with a bat ready to bash me over the head at the first wrong move rather i see a god that yes is holy and righteous but is also Loving, long-suffering, tender, compassionate, caring, always present, um, always responding, even though the answer sometimes to prayer may be no, but yet God is is engaging and is there. Is that kind of perspective shared by Mormons, or is he the, the big bo- boogeyman up in the sky ready to bop you over the head?
2: Honestly, I never had that impression, um, Craig. In fact, kind of to the opposite since i believed that god the father was a former man who had lived on another planet and that his wife or wives heavenly mother had gone through the same kind of process i had gone through in an earthly life i believe that they would be more sympathetic my struggles because they had been through them themselves. Mm. And of course that completely hijacks and shankies the role of Jesus Christ as someone who came to earth to share in our our, our, uh, sufferings. And you know, he suffered in all points just as we are. And if, if you don't mind me inserting this right now, because the, those four characteristics I told you uh, about a cult are so significant in evaluating any group like Mormonism, I would love to bless your listeners with a free ebook on the characteristics of a cult. All they have to do is go to latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll send them a free ebook that gives the characteristics of, of a cult. And you can take those and look at any group around you to see if they uh, if they follow these four characteristics. And to come back to what you're saying, this view of a formerly human God, the Father, diminishes him. See the comfort I have now, Craig, in the true and living God of the of the. Uh, of the uh, of the Bible, is that he doesn't ever change. Mormons believe God is eternally progressing, that, that he's going to be wiser tomorrow than he was today. And the problem with that, of course, is that he's not as wise as he will, uh, He wasn't as wise yesterday as he is today. Mm. That once you realize that, it, it makes him a lesser God because he's just one of us.
1: Yeah, and I'm so delighted that the God I serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and is all-knowing. And I don't have to worry about God learning something new tomorrow. He knows it all, and I can rely upon that in my own life. And you know, at the end, and I think this is a good point to end, conclude our conversation on Dr. Scott. Mormonism, like like many of the cults, if you if you scrutinize it close enough, you begin to realize that their attributes that are Christianity-like, that are Bible-ish, but in the end are, in fact, a cheap imitation of the real deal. Now, how can you gain a better understanding in knowing the difference? Well, uh, Dr. Scott, very gracious in offering a free e-book called What is a Cult? And all you need to do to get your own copy is to go to... Latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll spell that for you. It's L A T A Y N E, Latane.com forward slash cults. And you can get your own free copy of the ebook What is a Cult? Dr. Scott, we're going to have to have you back on when we've got more time to spend together because there's so much on this subject matter that I believe is worthwhile talking about and so many of the lessons that are certainly specific to Mormonism, but in the broader sense can be applied across the board for any. Any of us, no matter who you might run into as you share your faith with others, uh, gaining a better understanding of, um, of who Christ is, of course, and your own relationship with God is the first key to understanding more about the cults and sharing your faith. Information, again, on the web at Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com. And for your free ebook called What is a Cult? Simply go to latane.com forward slash cults. Dr. Latane Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The book under the banner of the Mormon Code. I'm Craig Roberts back with more right after this.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We
1: talked a bit earlier about um, some wayward attempts to try and, quote, unquote, um, finish the, uh, the justification for the so-called Equal Rights Amendment, which is dead in the water. And the, the, the notion that there's only a couple of states that missed ratification and it's a done deal. I mean, at the end of the day, as we discussed, it's just, quite frankly, an attempt to try and codify abortion into the Constitution and it's not going to work because it's, it's a badly flawed legal ploy. But I tell you what may potentially work that is equally as frightening. If the liberals in in the country are trying to, in a, you know, do a sleight of hand to "quote unquote" ratify the Equal Rights Amendment to essentially protect abortion rights across America, um, I tell you what could happen, and that is an attempt that will be at a ballot box near you coming this November to pass Proposition One, which would have just the 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 opposite effect, which would. Codify uh, abortion on demand into the state constitution in such a fashion that we're a future legislature to have a moment of truth experience and decide, you know what, this abortion on demand free for all that California has become is wrong. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's outrageously expensive. We want to make laws, change laws that would protect the unborn. Guess what? The passage of Proposition 1 would make it illegal because it would place into the the California Constitution abortion on demand. Frightening. Let's find out how this thing even made it qualification to the ballot as we're joined by Greg Burt, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council. And I, I guess at a level, Greg, I shouldn't be surprised. And yet when things like this happen, it, it, it nevertheless still horrifies me.
3: No, I hear you. Um, and this particular proposition wasn't put in, put on by, you know, signature gatherers collecting, you know, voter signatures. This is put on the ballot, uh, by the legislature, um, who overwhelmingly voted to put abortion right up to the moment of birth into our state constitution. Uh, but if you look at the polls, um, Californians do not like late term abortion. Um, even though, you know, they would call themselves majority would say that they're pro-choice and they want to protect the, the right for women to have uh, an abortion. Only 20 percent um, in a recent poll said that they believe abortion should be legal right up to the moment of birth. That means the rest want some type of limitation. And if so, then they should vote against Prop 1.
1: Absolutely, and and give us a little bit, if you would, a glimpse into the language of Prop 1 and what it's attempting to do or what it will do.
3: Sure, let me, uh, well, what is absent? I mean, I'm not sure people realize here in California that abortion um, is legal up to the moment of viability, which is typically around 24 weeks when a child is born can survive outside of the womb, right? And then once that happens in California, you have to have a doctor to determine um, whether the health or life of the mother is threatened. And that's and if it is, that's the only reason to justify an abortion after that fact. But before that, after that, after viability, it's illegal to do an abortion in California. Now, now, he, but here is what the amendment will say i'll just it's not too long and i'll just read it to you and you listen to see if there's any limiting language that you can hear it says the state shall not deny or interfere with the individual's reproductive freedom in their most intimate decisions which includes a fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refuse contraception contraceptives this section is intended to further the constitutional right of privacy guaranteed by, guaranteed by Section 1 and the constitutional right not to be denied equal protection guaranteed by Section 7. Nothing herein narrows or limits the right to privacy or equal protection. And that's it. Wow. There's no talk of viability. There is simply... It, guarantees the fundamental right of uh, a woman to have an abortion. I find it interesting too
1: that in the language here, they're they're specifically stipulating that it's, quote, intended to further the constitutional right to privacy, uh, close quote, and and, and yet completely ignoring that we just had the United States Supreme Court struck down the notion that somehow the right to privacy granted abortion on demand, which was the phony basis upon which uh, Mm -hmm. this whole dog-and-pony show started clear back in
3: 1973. You're right. And so California, already in the Constitution, has a, a right to privacy. And, and as long as the Supreme Court defined that a certain way, meaning that meant you had a right to an abortion, then they assume uh, the Constitution of California protected abortion. But now that the Supreme Court says, you know, that's not really in the Constitution, Um and so now, you know, they're they're trying to bolster, hey, let no one have any doubts that a right to privacy means you have a fundamental right to an abortion. And no limitations are in there. Right? And I don't think Californians do not like late-term abortions. They are, they are very uncomfortable with abortions once they know a child can survive outside the womb. Well,
1: no I'll go you one further. I think you'll also find the majority of Californians don't like the fact that we are and will be paying for people to come from other states to have abortions on our dime.
3: Well, that's I'm not sure if you saw yesterday the uh, governor of California just signed a, a dozen abortion bills in one of those bills. Is to fund travel expenses for people coming from out of state to California. He's actually putting up billboards around the country, encouraging people to come to California for an abortion. And now uh, it's SB eleven forty two, which was signed, uh, which pays for travel, lodging, childcare, meals, doula support. <laughs> you know, all for people outside the state, right? So our tax. So we're going to be, and he he set aside in the budget $200 million uh, for abortions um, in the budget for next year. So, uh, yes, taxpayer dollars will be funding this.
1: And you got to believe that's just going to be a start. It's only going to get worse from there. And, you know, I, I don't know if there was somewhat of a miscalculation in the sense that we have long had the mantra, well, this shouldn't be a federal issue. This should be decided by the states. Well, guess what? We got our wish, and it's good news for states that have a modicum of restraint about them. But you're in a state like California that has zero restraint. Uh, guess what? I guess we've got uh, two options, either or three options. either um, down hard on our tongue and deal with it vote with our feet meaning Pack up and leave the state of California or, and this is my preference, make some changes. and make some swift changes in Sacramento. We've got to stop voting for the same people over and over and over again because it's the only name we recognize. And more people of faith need to get involved in the body of politic. And you say, I don't want to be governor. Okay, you don't have to be governor. Run for school board. Run for city council. But run. Get involved and let's make a difference so that we can pass laws in the state that are more reflective of the state and not— I just a hand handful. Minority that has these extremist ideas that they wish to embrace. Uh, urging, uh, even as we're here uh, sitting, uh, you know, m- barely two months away from the general election or the midterm election, rather, here in the fall, I uh, want to encourage you, make a note of it. It's easy. Proposition 1, vote no. No vote on Proposition 1. More information on the web, CaliforniaFamily.org. That's CaliforniaFamily.org. Our thanks to Greg Bird, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council.